Today we're continuing on in our series in the book of Nehemiah. We just started it last week in case you weren't here last week. Um, Even though it's in the middle of your Old Testament, if you'll look in your Bible in the Old Testament, look at the the little contents there. It's in the middle there, but it's really not in the middle as far as when it was written. It was actually the last book written in the Old Testament, and that's important because it's a book that looks forward in hope, and it looks for a redeemer, someone who's going to rebuild God's people, restore God's people. And in some ways, we see that Nehemiah, but in other ways, it looks forward to 400 years later when we see that in the culmination of Jesus. And so I'm excited about the book of Nehemiah. We see that the, the overarching theme of the book of Nehemiah, we looked at it last week, was really that God rebuilds and that he restores. And we see God rebuilding and restoring through Nehemiah. And that should give us hope today as we think about the state of our own lives, the state of the church or the state of the people of God. God is the one who rebuilds and restores. And I pray that your faith is built in seeing God rebuilding and restoring through Nehemiah because God's always been about the business of rebuilding and restoring. Ever since the fall of humanity, God has had a plan and a purpose that he's carried out to rebuild and restore a people to himself. And he's going to carry that out in the final days as well. So God has used Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. That's what we're going to see not only this week and next week. That he uses Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem to restore a place. And Nehemiah is concerned. He's concerned that God's people are not accurately reflecting God's name. That, that they don't have a place. That they're not in a place of safety and security. And that God's name is defamed because of that. And so Nehemiah is concerned And today we come into the second chapter where Nehemiah moves. He moves from this prayer of grief to dependent prayer and action. And that's what we're going to see this morning in the second chapter of Nehemiah. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to stand for the reading of God's word. Please stand and let's listen to the word of the Lord. It's a longer passage, so if you're unable to stand the entire time, I totally understand. You can sit down in the middle, but we're going to stand now. And hear the word of the Lord. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I might rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the walls of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I had asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night and I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. And I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down. And its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate into the king's pool. But there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up by the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were due to the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with his gates burned. Come, 
let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, thank you for riveting accounts like this in your word that are vibrant, that are vivid, Lord. Thank you for giving us accounts of what it looks like for your servant to follow you, to obediently pray, depending on you, to plan, to pursue action. God, thanks for giving us a picture of of what it looks like to follow you. God, I pray that you would inspire each and every one of us here to, to respond to you, to see the condition of our lives, the church, the world around us, Lord, and to, and to pray. God, I pray it would inspire us not only to pray, but to plan, to take action, and to depend on you. God, I pray for your spirit this morning to Give me grace to speak and give grace to each and every one of us to hear. Lord, we can only hear or do anything through you and by your spirit. So, Lord, we dependently look to you right now. Lord, would you make us alive? Would you help us be attentive to you? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever been moved by the condition of your own life? You ever been moved or stirred by, you looked at your life and you reflect on your life. You know, we're in February now, so as Aaron mentioned, we're in February now, not March. Sorry, a little dig on Aaron there, but we're, we're in February. So we just passed the month of January where often people look back and reflect on their lives, things that need repair in their lives. And so have you ever thought about areas in your life that need repair, and need rebuilding? Have you ever reflected on them so much that you were grieved by them? How about the state of the church? Not, maybe, just, maybe this church. Maybe there's areas of weakness or deficiency that you see in the church. And have you reflected on those things and been grieved by those things? Not, not because of how it reflects on us, but because of how it reflects on God's name. Have you ever been convicted or experienced grief over the church generally? How the church generally is representing the name of Jesus Christ and, and where the church generally needs to grow and where Christians need to respond to him. Have you ever thought about those things? Have you ever been grieved by those things? I hope so. I hope you've been grieved in some sense about all of those things. You see, Nehemiah, he looked at the state of God's people and he was concerned because God's people were in danger. That God's people were unprotected. God's people had become lackadaisical with their state back in the land in exile. And, and they were okay with the walls being down and, and Nehemiah was concerned about that. He was concerned for God's people. He was concerned for the walls and what that represented about God's people. It represented the fact that God's people were in disrepair. That God's people were vulnerable, that yet it looked like God had abandoned his people, that God must not be very powerful, that his people must not really be his people after all. They weren't reflecting who they were. They weren't demonstrating to a watching world who their God was. They left the walls in disrepair. And and if you think about the city of Jerusalem, it was extremely important because that was the city from which the Messiah would eventually come. Or Bethlehem, but eventually the Messiah would come back in Jerusalem. All of the prophecies would be fulfilled. But yet if God's people were in disrepair, there was no place for the Messiah. He was concerned. He was grieved. He was grieved by his own sin. We saw in chapter one, he was grieved by his own personal sin and the fact that they deserved what they got. He was grieved by the state of God's people. He was grieved by the state of God's name not being made great. And then Nehemiah responded. Have have you ever been grieved by those things? Been grieved by 
the lack in your own life. Grieve by maybe areas that need rebuilding and restoring in your own life. Grieve by where the, this church needs rebuilding and restoring. Grieve by where the church universal needs rebuilding and restoring. I, I hope you've been grieved in those ways. But what have you done and what will you do in response? Nehemiah is a great picture of what it looks like for the servant of God to dependently trust in God and respond when he looks out and sees the state of himself and the people and the state of God's name. We see here a servant of God dependently praying, planning, and then pursuing action for God's name. That's, that's really the main idea we're going to unpack today is that we see, we see God's servant. He is dependently praying, but he doesn't stop there. He's praying, he's planning, he's pursuing action, he's doing all of this for God's name, for the sake of God's name. What will you do? What will I do? What will all of us do when we see and are grieved by needs, by a need to rebuild in our own lives and the lives of the church and the church universal? I think Nehemiah gives us a great picture of how we're to respond, how to respond in, in prayer and planning and pursuing action, and then and depending on, on God to enable us to glorify his name. Now, we, we might not be a Nehemiah in the same grand way. I doubt that any of us will go and rebuild in the same way. Jerusalem already is a city. It's a nation. It's very different. The purposes of God now and his people have changed since Jesus. But God can use each and every one of us. Nehemiah was not a remarkable person in one sense. He was just a servant of the king. Now, he had a good position. God had put him in such a position that he was the cupbearer to the king. He was the counsel of the king. He was a close friend of the king, a trusted confidant. And yet, he was really just a man. He'd come from an unknown father we saw last week. And he was in a position of influence. But he really didn't have significant skills that we learned about until he pursued the Lord, depended on God, and God did some mighty things through him. God still does mighty things through his people as we depend on him in prayer, as we, as we make great plans for God's name, as we significantly pursue action for the sake of his name and rely on him. And that's what we're going to see in Nehemiah. And I hope it inspires us to follow Nehemiah's example and say, God, what would you have me do? How would you have me pray? Lord, how would you have me make plans? How would you have me take action and depend on you all for the glory of your name? We're going to see four different characteristics of the servant of God that Nehemiah calls himself at the end of chapter one. Look down your Bibles. He refers to himself as the servant of God. Now that very name means that he depends on God. He relies on God. He's a servant of King Artaxerxes, but ultimately he's a servant of God. Ultimately he's dependent on God. He looks to God. And he says, he calls himself the servant of God. And we see that in this chapter two here that he depends on him in prayer. He depends on him in planning. He depends on him in pursuing action and in persevering through persecution. We're gonna see all four of those different characteristics of the servant of God. But first, before we see any outward action, Nehemiah, the servant of God, he has been in prayer. Look back in your Bibles in chapter one, the latter half of of chapter one. It says he began praying, and then now as as chapter two opens up, he he begins this chapter, he says, in the month of Nisan, and, and previously he said the month of Kislev, and so that's important because 16 weeks or so have transpired since Nehemiah was convicted, and he was grieved by the state of God's people, he was grieved by his own sin, he was grieved by the disrepair of the walls of Jerusalem, and, and he was grieved that God's name was not being accurately portrayed and reflected by the God's people. And by the disrepair of the walls, and so he was grieved. But what's the first thing that Nehemiah does? We saw that not only end of chapter 1, but we see that now. Nehemiah is a man of prayer. He's a man of prayer. That's the, the very first thing that we see. The servant of God depends on God in prayer. The servant of God depends on God in prayer. There was a time back many years ago when a man named George Mueller, in a time in England when most orphans, they lived in in miserable workhouses or on the streets. 
If you ever read Charles Dickens' Oliver Twist, that was really the conditions that George Mueller was observing all around him. Well, in the midst of those times, George Mueller took in orphans and fed them and clothed them and educated them. And through his orphanage in Bristol, Mueller cared for as many as 2,000 orphans at a time. He personally cared for more than 10,000 orphans in his lifetime. And yet, the, the, the astounding thing about George Mueller is he never made his ministry needs known to the people ahead of time, except to anybody, except for God in prayer. And only through his annual reports after the fact did the people learn about the needs that he had during the previous year and how God had provided. You see, the reason was that, that Mueller, he was a man of prayer. He had over 50,000 specific prayer requests that he journaled about. I, I, I can't even fathom that. 50,000 specific recorded answers to prayers in his journals. 30,000 of those, he said, were answered the same day or the same hour that he prayed. Think of that. That's, that's 500 definite answers to prayer each year. More than one a day. Every single day for 60 years. That's astounding. God funneled over half a billion dollars in, in today's dollars through his hands in answers to prayer. But the thing is, after, after about 10 years of fail, the first 10 years of his ministry, he said that he failed in prayer. He, he felt like he, he didn't know how to pray after 10 years of praying because the first 10 years, he would go to pray and he would get distracted or he would fall asleep or he would start praying and then his mind would go on to something else completely. And I, I can identify with that in, in George Mueller because often when I sit down to pray or stand up to pray or try to kneel to pray, I fall asleep. There's no condemnation for those things or you know, my, mind, my mind wanders or I get distracted. But it's great to see that prayer didn't depend on his ability to pray. God's answer to prayer did not depend on, on how great Mueller was at praying. But he says, you know, the, the secret to my prayers when I learned to pray better was that I first would read God's word and then I would pray from what God led me to from that. I think that's what we see in Nehemiah. Nehemiah's prayer at the end of chapter 1, uh, it's a prayer that is just saturated in God's word. He's, he's aware of who God is in God's nature and his character. He's aware of who he is, that he's unworthy, and that, that God's a covenant-keeping God who keeps steadfast love. And at the same time, though, he's aware of the fact that for those who keep his covenant, and so he's aware, God, I've not kept your covenant. And yet he prays that God would be merciful. And then we see here the culmination of those prayers. And he's continuing in prayer. And then in, in chapter, in verse 4 of, of, of chapter 2, we see that he is specifically still in prayer. In, in the midst of being before the king, he is a man of constant prayer. And I think Nehemiah was nourished by God's word, confident in who God was and is. I love, I love what George Mueller says. For my heart, being nourished by the truth, being brought into experimental, or we would say today experiential fellowship with God, he says, I speak to my father and to my friend, vile though I am and unworthy of it, about the things that he brought before me in his precious word, and it often now astonishes me that I did not sooner see this point. That's, that's the that's the quote there from Donald Whitney's book, Praying the Bible. I'd, I'd encourage you to, to pick that up and, and be edified by it. But I think the example was set long beforehand from, from Nehemiah. He's been praying for four months by the time this chapter opens. And he's the cupbearer of the king. And notice, look down in, in verse 2. He's sad, or actually in verse 1, he's, he's sad in the presence of the king. Now that was a bad idea. The Persian king, he was, he was over the entire area from Egypt and Turkey all the way to India. He was the, the supreme emperor of, of that era. And he was over all, and he didn't tolerate people disagreeing with him. He didn't tolerate threats to his supremacy. He didn't like when people weren't unhappy in his presence, because why should not people be happy in the presence of the emperor? It was a privilege just to be there. 
And also, if people were unhappy, they were ungrateful. And so that would be a danger to be ungrateful before the emperor. But also, if you were unhappy, it might mean that you were angry with the king and you might be plotting something against him. And, and how dare the cupbearer of the king, the one who had access to what the king drank, to potentially be plotting against the king. And so Nehemiah sat in the presence of the king and the king asked him a question. And it, and it could be an indictment. We don't know either way, but it, it kind of sounds almost like an accusation. The king says, why is your face sad? Saying, you're not sick, so why are you sad? He says, this is nothing but sadness of the heart. Now notice Nehemiah's response in in verse 2. Nehemiah had a response in verse 2. He says, then I was very much afraid. He he realized, oh my goodness, he just saw how sad I was and I'm, I'm in danger here. I'm in danger. He's potentially fearing for his life. He was very much afraid. And we might not be able to relate, you know, the president of the United States, if we went into the presence of the president and we were sad, nothing bad would happen. They, he might think we were a little off or might not like us very much, but we wouldn't be in danger of losing our life. So we can't relate to that. But Nehemiah was in danger here. It wouldn't have gone over well if the king was angry with him. He could have been put to death. And yet Nehemiah, he says, I was very much afraid Nehemiah pours out his heart to the king and he says, he says, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? He pours out his heart. He makes an answer to the king. But notice Nehemiah has not stopped being ultimately aware of his dependency on God and in his need for God. Well, In verse 4, he says, then the king says, what are you requesting? And how does Nehemiah respond? He says, so I prayed. I prayed to the God of heaven. He'd been praying for months already. He finally got to the place where he is exposed. His heart is exposed before the king. God uses that divinely to create an opportunity for Nehemiah to pour his heart out. Nehemiah doesn't just say, oh, it's nothing, my king, I'm not sad. Instead, he uses this God-given opportunity to speak up, but he only does it depending on God in prayer. He says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. That's, it's not a throwaway line. You see, see, Nehemiah's written this memoir, and he's written the memoir deliberately. He's, he's outlined really what he is all about, what he depends upon, who he depends upon, and, and he is reliant on prayer. That's how he's just finished chapter one. He's beginning saying, I, essentially, I've, I've been in prayer for four months now, and by the way, even when I had an opportunity to go before the king, I was still praying. And I was realizing in my fear, in, in adversity, when... I was given an opportunity to speak and I was tempted to fear. What do I do? I pray. That's what the servant of God does when he has an opportunity to speak for God. We pray. We depend on God in prayer. Now, it's not a lengthy prayer. He says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. And people have called this an arrow prayer, you know, when you say, oh God, please help me. And I can imagine that's probably what he did because he didn't have a long time to ponder and, and say, hang on, king, let me just pray for a second and get down here. But he, had, he was in a posture of prayer, and that's a good lesson for us as believers, is that we, because of our previous prayer, because of Nehemiah's previous prayer, he was in a posture of prayer, and his life was depending on God prayerfully, continually. So in the midst of being confronted by the king, he says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. And I can imagine he said, oh God, please give me wisdom. Give me words. Where do you turn when you were under pressure? Nehemiah knew that no matter what, he needed God to give him wisdom and favor. His immediate reaction was to turn to God, the only only person who could help enable his request to be successful. Where do you turn? Where is your inclination in your heart? Is your heart so steeped in prayer that when adversity hits, when troubles hit, when trials hit, that you turn to God and say, oh God, please. Trusting and depending on him in prayer. You know, I think if you want the kind of response that Nehemiah had, let's steep our hearts in scriptures and saturate our hearts in prayer that God might work through our efforts to advance his good news. Now, it doesn't say that Nehemiah heard anything back from God. It doesn't say that, that Nehemiah 
heard a response back from God, and God said, well, tell the king this. Nope, Nehemiah, he trusted in God, he depended on God, and he prayed, and he trusted God with his prayers. And then he takes action, he speaks up. He was both dependent on God, and he was bold for God. He was, he was prayerfully dependent on God, and it enabled him to speak. And I, and I think that's a lesson for us, is if, if we are prayerfully dependent on God, God enables us to speak for him. Because ultimately, God wants us to declare his name. He wants us to be about the rebuilding process that he is in and rebuilding a people for himself and rebuilding a kingdom. Notice Nehemiah's request is not small. He says, if it pleases the king, if your servants found favor in your sight, the same thing that Judah, the city of my father's grades, and might rebuild it. And, and Nehemiah is taking a risk here in prayer. He is depending on God, and he's taking a risk in, in saying anything at all because the king, Artaxerxes, had made a decree that said that the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem should stop. We see that if you look back in Ezra. And then the report he gets from his brother Hanani in chapter 1 is that the city is disrepaired, that, that the rebuilding had only stopped, but the enemies have sacked the city. The, the walls are in disrepair. And so Nehemiah makes a bold request. Now think about that for a second. Nehemiah was not a builder. He was a cupbearer. He was a cupbearer. But he saw a need, and he, he thought, wait a minute, if I can, I can do something about this need. And he makes this bold request. He was living a comfortable life, he was in the court of the king. He, he was an affluent man. He apparently was making a lot of money in that position. The king was rewarding him handsomely because we see later on he has a lot of funds in the book of Nehemiah to support 150 people at his table. You can see that later on in chapters of Nehemiah. He was living in safety and security. He was in the, the capital city. He was living around the king. He was protected. The emperor and his own guard were his safety and security. He was living a comfortable life. He got to be around the king and all the benefits that it enjoyed, he enjoyed, that that meant. He wasn't a builder. He wasn't personally responsible for the condition of God's people or the, the temple or the walls. And yet he was grieved. He was grieved by the condition of God's people and he prayed and in prayer he developed a conviction that he could and he should do something about it. He assumed he should. He saw a need instead of seeking comfort and safety and security and ease. And he sought out doing the hard thing. Because he could. And he assumed that if he could, that he should at least try and trust in God. He saw a need. He was affected by the plight of God's people, a condition of God's place. And he took personal responsibility. So he asked the king to be sent back. Now don't misread his request. He wasn't just asking to go and be a part of it. He was asking to lead a rebuilding effort on behalf of the king. He had developed a conviction after fasting and prayer that moved his heart to respond. He was determined and convinced and he had prayed about what he was concerned about. You know, maybe, maybe you've seen a concern in your own life. Maybe you've seen a need in your own life. Maybe you've seen a need of this church or in the church universal. You know, last week we saw a tragedy that occurred in Florida. And there's all kinds of rhetoric being bantied about and some Christians responded very poorly. Are you grieved by that? What do you do? Do you pray about those things? Do you take those concerns and think, how can I respond? Can I take those things to God? Can I pray to the one who can do something? The only one who can do something. And then do I think, God, would you enable me to respond? Nehemiah saw a need, he was grieved, he prayed, he fasted, and then he sought to do something more than just talking about it. You know, do you ask bold requests of God? Do you ask that you might be a part of his plan to rebuild, to redeem, to restore, not only your life, but the church and those around you? Nehemiah had been praying, and, and obviously he'd been thinking about these things and he'd been waiting for four months and then now we see in verses five to eight he moves from this bold praying this this bold confidence before the king because of prayer he moves from that that life of dependent prayer and he remains dependent but now he depends on God through planning 
If you look down your Bibles in, in, in verse five through eight, we see that, that Nehemiah had some serious plans. He'd been praying and he had a plan. He didn't just say, you know what, I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna leave it to God and I'm, and I'm, and I'm just gonna wait and see what happens. No, he, he prayed, he started thinking, he started planning, he made plans, and then he waited for God to enable him to, to bring those plans to fruition, to open up the door, to give him an entry for that. He wasn't sitting and being inactive. Prayer was very active and prayer inspired him to think and to plan and to strategize. What can I do to rebuild God's kingdom and God's people? How can I help restore this? How can I be a part? Christian, how would God move on your heart to dream for how you would rebuild and restore and be a part of God's rebuilding and restoration process for the sake of his name as God brings his kingdom about, as he builds his kingdom, as he rebuilds the people for himself through the good news of Jesus. And then how would you prayerfully, dependently begin to plan? God, how would you use me? Nehemiah had been praying and he had planned. He'd prepared. You know, I was reading about a man named Oscar Schindler He was a member of the Nazi party and he acquired a ceramic and then later became an ammunition factory in Poland and he became a man of of affluence and he had great means. And he then saw that Jews were being exterminated in concentration camps in Poland. And he saw this need and he was grieved by it. And... I don't know about his his faith or not. Supposedly he was a believer. But he saw this need and then he took action and he started planning. If, If Oscar Schindler had not begun to make plans for how he could rescue the Jews that he ended up rescuing, I think over 1,200 Jews out of 1,700 that, that worked in his factory, he ended up rescuing 1,200 Jews. He, he made a list and he was strategic and, and he planned, how are some ways that I can, I can hide these people? How are, what are some ways that I can prevent the Nazis from taking them and exterminating them? And how can I get around the rules? And, and how can I plan to circumvent things? And if he didn't plan, then... 1,200 Jews would have been killed. Nehemiah, he'd prepared. He'd thought through things. He wasn't flying by the seat of his pants. He had a timeline. When the king asked him, he immediately had a response to the king. He immediately had a response to the king. He said, well, you know, the king says, well, tell me about how long you'll be gone. And so he had a response. He had thought through how long it would take to rebuild the city. Now, he didn't know probably that he was going to be gone 12 years. He probably only gave him something around a year, we would guess. Because the first 12 chapters of Nehemiah took place within a year. They seemed to be a kind of reporting to the king. And then it seems like he must have been appointed permanent governor and then sent back again. But in any case, Nehemiah had planned. He thought through it wisely. He, he thought about what kind of permission he would need. He thought, you know what? If I'm going to go over there, I'm going to need to go through all these different lands. And if I'm going to be sent as a governor of Judah, that's going to cause some political problems. I need to think through a strategy for how do, I, how do I get there safely? How do I carry out God's purposes that he has for me? What do I do? And he had a plan for how he could take personal action. What would he do in response to the plight of God's people and in response to the need for rebuilding? He anticipated the authority he'd need to undertake the project. The king asked him how long he'd be gone, and, the, and he tells him, the king says, okay, great. Well, then Nehemiah proceeds to tell him about, well, can I, can I also do this? By the way, um, that's how long he'd be gone, but I've got some ideas here. And the king might have been a little surprised because Nehemiah had it right on the tip of his tongue. He thought it all through. He says, I've got some ideas, and, and by the way, I need a letter for the governors beyond the river. That's the Tigris, the Euphrates River, anything. It's, it's kind of like um, for, for people in New York City, they, they think about everything outside of New York City is just the rest of the world. Maybe you think like that about, about Greenville. I don't know. The upstate, and this is God's country, and the rest of South Carolina is just kind of there. I don't know. But this is the land beyond the river, the land beyond the Euphrates. And he asked for favor so that he would have safe passage. And then he actually takes a, a contingency of the captains of the guard, and he takes noblemen in the military along with him to show that the king's stamp of approval. And so Nehemiah essentially is requesting all of these things, and he's requesting not only that, but he's, he makes a really bold request. 
on God's behalf. He makes a really bold plan on God's behalf. He says, would you also give me a letter so that I have carte blanche to, to the whole forest, to the king's forest, so that Asaph, to keep the forest, he'll give me whatever I need. It's a pretty bold request from a cupbearer who had no ex- experience building, had no personal responsibility, but he saw a need for rebuilding. He assumed God was calling him to do something about that need because he was so grieved by that need. And by the way, just as an aside, it's a, it's a, it's a great takeaway for us is when you see a need in not only your, your own life and your family or in the church, maybe you're grieved by it. You don't have to go and wait for permission to go and meet those needs. You think, wait a minute, if there's a need, maybe God would have me to meet that need. Let me pray about that. Let me pursue that. Let me make some plans. Let me take some action. I'm gonna take that on myself. I'm going to assume that that God has given me a conviction, given me a need so that I can do something about it and not sit back and wait for somebody else to do things. And and I'm going to dependently pray. I'm going to dependently plan. And waiting on God's timing, looking for the opening. And if it's from God, he's going to make it happen. So Nehemiah planned and he prayed and he planned. And now we see in verses 9 to 18, he pursues action when the time was right. He pursues action when the time's right. He took action. He, he says, then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river. It, it's really short. It goes from here's what I requested, here's what I wanted to do, and then he just does it. The king gives him permission. He gives him the letters. He gives him the right to all of his forests to help rebuild. And then Nehemiah goes. He takes, he, he takes action. He hears from God. He gets approval from the king. He sees that that's God's hand, that only God can bless our plans. If, if we are prayerfully depending on God and we are wanting the glory of God's name, we're wanting to help restore God's people, and if you want to do that, that God's name might be glorified, and we make plans, and then God blesses those plans, we can just take a step and say, you know what, I'm going to trust in God. I'm going to take action. We see that the king sent him and he came, he went to the governors, he gave them the king's letters, along with the officers and the army and the horsemen, and he took action. Kind of like Oscar Schindler, when he took action, he didn't just compile a list, but when they wanted to move the concentration camps, they were gonna exterminate all the Jews in the area that were remaining instead. Oscar Schindler, he took action, he moved his factory from Krakow to Brunitz to help rescue the people, and he bribed a whole lot of Nazi officials. He actually made himself bankrupt rescuing people. Nehemiah, at great personal cost, he left He left behind a cushy job. He left behind security and safety. He left behind a place where he didn't have to take responsibility for anything else. He didn't have to go in a hard land. He left behind a really affluent, protected, safe place to go to a place that was really not his own. He wasn't born there. He'd never been there, probably. And he goes to this hostile place. Jerusalem would have been a hostile place. They were surrounded by the enemies on all sides. It was hostile. It tells a story about Sinballat, who was probably a Sumerian governor, and he was not originally a Jew. He was probably replaced there by the Babylonians originally. We hear about Tobiah, who was another governor, and then we hear about another man named Geshem. We'll hear about him later. And, he, and Jerusalem was surrounded by these, these governors who did not like God's people. And he was in a dangerous place, and he was going to a dusty, barren city that was destroyed, where there'd be heart. heart Hard work and, and back-breaking labor. It would mean sacrifice. And yet he goes. How's God calling you and me to sacrifice, to leave our place of comfort, to take action for God's people, for the sake of his name? Notice the, the reactions of Sanballat and Tobiah. As I mentioned, Sambal is the governor probably of Samaria. Tobiah is probably the governor of the Ammon region. It displeased them greatly because they did not want to see God's people succeed. They did not want to see God's people be reestablished. Probably not just for political reasons, but at least political reasons because there was not, not a governor there 
in Judah. So now this governor was going to be a threat to them. But in addition to that, they just didn't like the people of Israel. They did not like the people of God. They did not want to see God's people be reestablished. And so he immediately faces this external opposition. But he doesn't go into confrontation mode. Look in verses 11 to 16. He's wise. He takes action. But as he's doing that, he takes account of the situation. He surveys the city by night. He only takes a few trusted men with him. I love, love the imagery there. It's, it's vivid. We have actually, I think, a slide for you of, of what he went around and looked at in the city, I think. That's what the city would have looked like after he finished rebuilding it. I think there's another slide after that of the area that Nehemiah went around. Sorry, the projector's not very bright. Hopefully we'll be able to replace those pretty soon, by the way, so you can see things a little bit better. But he went around this whole area of the city, and he did it by night because he, he, he wanted to make sure he was carrying out his plans wisely. He was being strategic. He was thinking through things, and he was being purposeful. He made sure he understood things on the ground. He got a lay of the land first. It would have been a demanding nighttime trip. It would have... He would have had to take account of every segment of the wall that needed to be done. It would have been dangerous. There were enemies in the city and there were enemies around. He had to be on guard. But he, then he brought his plan to the people and, and listened to how he took action in motivating them. Look in verse 17. He says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? He says, Come. Let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. What was he concerned about? He was concerned that they were suffering derision, that they were, they were being derided, that God's people were being derided, that his name was being spoken about as these must not really be the people of God. God must have left them. God must have departed them because they are in disrepair. Their God must not be very powerful. They must no longer have a God. They're in disrepair. And he says, let's rebuild so that we may no longer suffer derision. It was ultimately the sake of God's name that he was taking action for. The name of God's people, the name of God himself. Their trouble was a spiritual disgrace. Yes, they, they were disgraced as a people, but there was a spiritual disgrace. The walls remaining destroyed for over a century. They would communicate the message that, that Israel's God was powerless or weak, or that God was no longer for them. And he said, Here, here's their trouble, and here's why it's a problem. He knew exactly why he's rebuilding the walls, and he wanted them to know why they were doing what they were doing. And, and for Christians, you know, there's no physical wall for us to rebuild anymore. There's no physical wall for us to rebuild. The temple is, is now each of us as his people indwelt by the Holy Spirit where he makes his presence. But there may be rebuilding that needs to be done. There may be areas in your life that you are not accurately reflecting what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus. And that reflects on who Jesus is, on his name. And you might be suffering derision and his name might be suffering derision and we might need to rebuild. Some of you here might feel like your gates are burned down completely and your life is a complete pile of rubble. We have one greater than Nehemiah that's here. You see, Jesus, he is the master carpenter. What is that? He's a builder. Back in that day, carpenters didn't just build with stone. They probably built, I mean, build with wood. They probably built with stone as well. So when he says Jesus is a carpenter, don't just think wood, think wood, stone. And Jesus is called the master builder. He came to make you and I new. If your life's in shambles, you can respond to him. You can ask him to forgive your sins, trust in him to lead you, he'll make you new. For others who, who are believers, God's name still might be at stake because the walls and gates of our lives are in disrepair and have holes. Maybe the gates of what we're allowing into our minds, into our mouths, into our eyes, and our hearts might be in disrepair. Maybe some have given in to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. We need to rebuild our lives in response to God's word. For all of us, do people know that we are his disciples because of our love for one another? 
Are we demonstrating and applying the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our friendships? If, if not, or if there are areas we need to grow, let's, let's be grieved and hear the call and, and build our lives on the sure foundation, the solid rock of Jesus. For others, the wall of disciple-making needs work. We've been, we've been talking about before this book, we were talking all about who we are as a church and that our, our mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And we need to understand the why. Just like in Nehemiah's day, they need to understand the why behind it. Why is it important that we re- rebuild the walls of disciple-making? It's not just because we want people to have focus and have a mission and do something outside of ourselves. It's because... The cause of Jesus, the good news of Jesus is great. That his rebuilding mission is great. That he came to bring a people to himself. That he came to to build his kingdom. And that he invites us to be a part of that. And so that the gospel is at stake in our disciple making. What do we say we believe about Jesus is seen in, in how we make disciples. We're disciples of Jesus because he's the ultimate restorer. Jesus came to restore a people to fellowship with God, to restore his kingdom so we can live at peace with God and and ultimately safe from the threats of sin and the devil. And even if we die, he makes us born again, a new creation in him. He rebuilds, he restores broken lives through the good news of Jesus Christ. That's why we're disciples. Where do we need to repair the walls of disciple-making? Where do the church's walls need to be rebuilt? Where do we as a church need to accurately testify about who Jesus is? Let's not be weak or or fearful or ashamed because it communicates a false message that, that Jesus isn't really with us. That he's not really transformed us. Nehemiah didn't just tell them about the trouble, he also gave them confidence. And notice, look in your Bibles, how he gives them confidence and where it is that he starts. Look down in verse eight, he says, the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. He told them about the hand of God. And then then look down again in, in verse 18. He says, then I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. How do we begin to be rebuilt? We, we begin to step out and to take action by saying, look at what God has done. God's hand is at work. Look and see where God's at work. Be encouraged. God has not left us. Here is the hand of our God at work. And he recounts to them how God led them, including bestest plans. And then after putting their confidence in God, really giving his personal testimony. But here's where God's been at work. And by the way, that's the effect in other people's lives as well. When we share, here's where I've seen God at work in you. Here's where I've seen God at work in my life. Here's where I've seen God at work in the church. And, and I want you to understand we can have confidence in taking action because the hand of our God, the good hand, the gracious hand of God is with us. And they, they took confidence in that. And he recounted all of the things of how God had helped him. And then he showed how not only had God helped him, the king had commended Nehemiah and supplied his work. The confidence we can have is that our great God, the God of the heavens, is the one who will rebuild our lives, the one who will rebuild the lives of those around us, the one who rebuilds this church, the one who makes all things new. We can have confidence as we take action for him. Now notice the response of Sanballat and Tobiah, the men who were most likely governors of the area around there. Look in the verses around there. It says that in verse 19, they jeered at us and despised us. They said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? When, When we prayerfully depend on God, when we plan for God, when we, when we purposefully take action, we probably will experience persecution. And that's what Nehemiah was experiencing. Just because we experience persecution and opposition does not mean that God has not blessed our plans, our prayers, and that God will not bless our actions. God was re- answering Nehemiah's prayers. He was answering Nehemiah's plans. He was, he was working through Nehemiah's plan of action and, and 
And yet he still experienced persecution. And yet what we see, that the fourth characteristic of the servant of God that we see here is the servant of God depends on him in persevering through persecution. He says, they said, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Not only are Sanballat and Tobiah opposing him, but now this man called Geshem, he was probably the leader of all the, the Arab League of Nations at that time, and he probably controlled, uh, we, we know from history, he probably controlled the frankincense and the myrrh trade. They were very lucrative financial trades. What we have here is a picture of Nehemiah being surrounded on all sides. He was surrounded by the governor from the north and the west, and in Samaria, he was surrounded by Tobiah. He was surrounded on the east from... Geshem, he was opposed. And they all made fun of him. They jeered, it says, they jeered at them. You ever been made fun of for being a Christian? You ever been made fun of for how you pray and depend on God and and your plans for God and how you want to take action for God? You ever been made fun of? You ever been told you're dumb or or said that you're foolish or ridiculous or why are you living for those things? Why are you doing those things? He faced opposition. Not only did they jeer at him, it says they despised them. There may be times when you as a follower of Jesus are not only jeered at, but you're despised. And I think that's not too far. It's not too far in the future. Followers of Jesus today are jeered at and despised. It probably will increase. That doesn't mean that God's not blessing his people as they depend on him in prayer and plan and they take action, there will be persecution. It's it's, it's always been the case. But we can persevere in the midst of all kinds of insults and evil being said about us by, by critics for his name's sake. You know, maybe in your life you have, you have fallen prey to what people said about you. The power of the tongue is, it's amazing. It's a weapon that our enemy uses often to discourage us. Maybe you've been jeered at and despised and discouraged by enemies around. Maybe you've fallen into fear. You've been threatened. You've been belittled. You've been marginalized, demoralized. See that for what it is. It's, it's, it's ultimately a spiritual attack. And then realize that the God of heavens who Nehemiah mentions throughout this chapter. It is grounded in Nehemiah's vision of who God is. He has a vision of the God of the heavens and that God's hand is with me. That's how Nehemiah is able to persevere. He sees that God is sovereign. He is over all and that God is with him. God's good hand is with him. We need to look up and see that the God of heavens is with us and that his good hand is will bring about his purposes and his plans through us. That he is sovereign over even when persecution happens. Jesus talked about it in Matthew 5, 11. He says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. You're thinking, wait a minute, that's not very good. How am I blessed? He says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He says, rejoice and be glad. Why? Because we know where our reward is. He says, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecute the prophets who were before you. We can, in the midst of persecution, we can persevere knowing that God's gracious hand is with us and that he will rebuild. He ultimately will be successful in his rebuilding plan. And that he'll reward us greatly in heaven. Sometimes Christians can be accused of wrong motives or being rebellious or proud or mean or intolerant or discriminatory because we believe the truth about Jesus and proclaim it. It's nothing new. Paul, the apostles, they were all thrown in jail because of their testimony about Jesus. Some people still in places like North Korea and China are thrown in jail for their testimony, but God's gracious hand has always been with his people and always will be with his people. Like we read in Revelation 21 and 22, there will be one day when the final culmination of God's rebuilding process comes about and he makes all things new. In the meanwhile, he rewards us and will reward us as we trust in him and take action for him. 
Look at how Nehemiah responds on behalf of people in verse 20. Look in verse 20, he says, then I replied to them. What's, what's Nehemiah more aware of? Is he, is he threatened by the fact that all of these governors around and these powerful men around him, they are threatening him? And no, he says, I reply, I reply to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. Christian, who are you trusting in? We can trust in the God of heaven to make us prosper as we carry out his message, as we make disciples, as, as we seek to proclaim the good news and he's rebuilding the kingdom through us, through our words, he actually makes all things new. He rebuilds, he restores. Are you trusting the fact that the God of heaven will make us prosper? I love what Nehemiah says. The God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build. You might be shouting at us, you might be jeering at us, making fun of us, but we're going to trust in God and we're going to get up and we're going to build. Christian, what will you do? Will you see God, trust in him, get up and build? There's a quote by H.G.M. Williamson. He says, at this early stage, talking of Nehemiah, he's content to leave God with the responsibility for the negative handling of opposition. This too is one of the hardest lessons for any church or individual to learn. You have to trust God, that God has the ability and responsibility for the negative handling of opposition, and we can trust God and move out in faith. Their enemies had no claim over them. They were under the right authority and claim of God. And for us, we can be confident that God of heaven will make us prosper. Now, as we close, I want you to understand something about Nehemiah. Nehemiah really is ultimately not about Nehemiah. I know it sounds kind of crazy, right? Doesn't that book bear his title? Doesn't it bear his name? Hasn't he written most of the book? Isn't it mostly about his exploits? Well, yes, but no. You see, all of the Bible is ultimately about Jesus. Jesus told us that when he was with his disciples. He said he explained the entire Bible, first to last, how it was all about him and pointing to him, looking for him. You see, Nehemiah is a forerunner of Jesus. He is one, Nehemiah, who left a place of comfort in the presence of the king to go to a place of hardship and suffering and difficulty and labor. Ultimately, though, we don't trust in men like Nehemiah. We look forward to the ultimate Nehemiah, Jesus, the one who left his throne and came to the earth and became a man and lived in this dusty, dirty life, was born in a manger, and he took our place. He entered into life. Nehemiah went to a distant land and did hard work for the sake of God's people. Nehemiah prayed, and we see that Jesus in his high priestly prayer, he is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows what is coming. He knows how difficult it's going to be, and he yet is praying so fervently that it's like he prayed drops of blood fell from his face. And, and, he, and he says, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass for me, yet nevertheless not my will, but yours be done. He was the ultimate one to seek God's will. And then he's the ultimate one who gave the ultimate sacrifice. All through the book of Nehemiah, we're going to see that Nehemiah personally sacrifices. Jesus made the ultimate personal sacrifice on our behalf and in our place. He was the one who carried out the plans of God to the uttermost. You know what? If, if God had never planned to send his son, it never would have happened. So he's our ultimate exemplar in planning. Jesus was praying and he planned he, he made a way, God had made a way to send his son. He planned throughout the ages and at just the right time Jesus came and, and fulfilled God's plans and he carried out God's purposes and he took action on our behalf so that ultimately we might be saved. And so our, our confidence is not that we, we don't earn any favor before God as we are convicted and experience grief and we pray and we plan and we take purposeful action, we persevere through prayer. And actually, we can't even do those things on our own. But we can take heart knowing that we have a greater Nehemiah who's leading us. That he, he has 
been grieved. He has taken action. He has prayed for us and he has persevered and, and he ultimately has carried out his plans and he is already about this building process and all he's asking for us is, hey, come and join me in it. So Christian, how would you respond today to the greater Nehemiah who calls us on, on his grand rebuilding mission that he's already established, that he's already brought about and he's already going to complete and he invites us to be a part of it let's respond to Jesus in prayer making plans for him thanking him that that we get to be a part of his plans and then taking action for his name's sake amen let's pray and Philip you want to go ahead and come up and and let's, let's sing a song